morning. What a difference a week makes. If you were here last week, I pretty well had to be propped up here in order to preach. I did not feel well. You see that trash can right there? That was placed there for a reason. I was hoping I wouldn't have to use it, and I was hoping you wouldn't have to see that. But uh, thankfully, we made it through. Feel much better this week. Thank you for being here. If you're visiting with us, we want you to know that this is a loving, vibrant congregation that loves people and uh, loves the Lord, and we want you to feel at home. So if we can answer any questions, if we can uh, you know, meet and greet with you afterwards, we'd love to do that uh, and make you feel at home. Let me ask you a question to start with this morning. How do you eat an elephant? You know, the answer to that question is one bite at a time, right? Many times when a basketball team is down like 20, 30, 40 points at halftime, the coach will come in and say something like, okay, guys, we don't have a 40-point shot in our arsenal, so we're going to have to chip away at this a little bit at a time. And I think that's the case a lot of times when we go to a book like Revelation. It's kind of like eating an elephant. It's kind of, you know, chipping away at it a little at a time. You do it just one bite at a time. There's not an easy way to do it, an all-consuming way necessarily to do it. You know, when I was living in Missouri, I had a young lady that wanted to study the Bible, and I went to her house, and we sat down, and I had my notes ready. We were going to look at Mark, the Gospel of Mark, and I was going to talk about the identity of Jesus. But before I could even, you know, jump in, she said, okay, so Revelation, what's the deal with that? And I said, well, there's a lot of deals with that, but I don't think we want to deal with that this, this first time. I can remember as a sophomore in high school, playing varsity football, the seniors were huge. They were gigantic, big guys. And they had declared this particular Monday as National Kill a Sophomore Day. And so I walked around school all day scared to death because I was a scrawny little guy that uh, didn't have a lot of meat on his bones and a lot of protection. And it came to the point of the day where class was out and I went over to the field house to get dressed and I walk in and one of the seniors is eating glass. I kid you not, he's eating glass to intimidate us and it worked. And so I go in, I get dressed, and we go outside for practice, and there's this drill where it's, you know, you're lined up across from somebody else, and you carry the ball, and they tackle you as hard as they can. That's basically the drill. And here I was lined up with Sean White, the biggest, meanest senior. And Sean's watching this morning, I think, so I want to say hi to him. Um, Because I told him I was going to use him in the sermon this morning. We still keep in touch. But Sean was lined up across from me, and I was scared to death of Sean White. Scared to death of all the seniors, but I was scared to death of Sean White. And just before the, the coach blew the whistle, I asked him, can I write out my last will and testament, really? <laughs> so right before he blows the whistle, Sean takes a little guy about my size and puts him in front of himself so that I matched up with him instead. And I could never have been so happy in my life. And I, I thank Sean so much for saving my life that day rather than taking it. Many people look at the book of Revelation the same way. It's intimidating. It's scary. It's horrifying. It's eerie. It's, it's, it's doom and gloom. And there are some Christians, some churches even, that decide not to even approach the book of Revelation because it does cause so much trepidation. But that's quite a shame, really, when you think about it. Because what may seem eerie and, and, and doom and gloom on the surface is the perfect ending to the Bible. Revelation is the perfect ending to the story of Scripture, and we miss out on so much when we avoid it. 
I got to admit to you, when I was looking at this His Word series, knowing that we were going to go through the New Testament this year, I got to Revelation and I thought, how in the world are we going to cover a few chapters or a few thoughts from Revelation without doing all the setup? Because there's a lot of setup. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm just going to take one chapter and we're going to look at that and make some modern day application. We're not going to get into, you know, God's coloring book too deeply. Because there is apocalyptic language to decipher. There is a little bit of what we might call decoding going on. And I don't want to spend our time with that this morning. That may be better suited for a Bible class anyway. Let's just look at Revelation chapter 11 for a moment. Let's read there, starting in verse 1. It says, Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff. And someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And I will, I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city which mystically is called Sodom in Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies watched them. And in that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming. Some think that Revelation chapter 11 is the most difficult chapter in the most difficult book of the Bible. And there may be something to that. It, a lot of the confusion, though, is attributed to a rendering that is literal. And if you know anything about literal uh, versus apocalyptic language, you know that Revelation cannot be accepted literally throughout the book. It is, it is written in figurative language, and it has to be read as such. That's the literary form, and we have to take it that way. So what do the two witnesses here represent? Let's start there. Well, some people believe that they represent Moses and Elijah. Some people believe that they represent Joshua and Zerubbabel. Some people believe that they represent John and Jesus. I don't think that the two witnesses were meant to represent two literal people. I think the two witnesses here represent the church. Why two? Well, because of that whole two or three witnesses thing that plays out throughout the Old Testament especially. Witness is actually an interesting word. It's a scary word because it is where we get our word for martyr. As we can see in this passage, the witnesses 
would sacrifice their lives for the cause of Christ. They came to give their testimony, and I, wanted, I want you to notice their identifying characteristics. It first says that they came to prophesy or to speak for God. It says that they were dressed in sackcloth. Why? Well, because this was appropriate attire when you are preaching a message of repentance. It's symbolic of the hardship that God's people must undergo to spread and live out the gospel. It also says that they are described as two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. By the way, we said we weren't going to get too deep in the uh, deciphering, but hang with me. This means that they were emphasizing the fact that they were ready to do God's will. They come with power. Anytime God sent a new word, he sent power to accompany it, right? When he sent Moses with a new word, he sent him with power to do miracles. When Jesus came with a new word, he was sent with the power to do miracles to confirm the word. And it says, but when their testimony is finished, they will be killed. The beast or Satan is going to rise up and make war with these faithful Christians and they will become martyrs. One of the most iconic songs of the 70s, maybe of all time, is the song American Pie by Don McLean. If you haven't heard that song, come forward at the invitation and repent. (laughs) Throughout this song, it is mentioned about the day that the music died. This is a reference to the plane crash in 1959 that killed Richie Valens, Buddy Holly, and the Big Bopper, the day the music died. And although it may sound strange to you, that's kind of where my mind goes when I read this passage from Revelation. The day the music died, if you will. The two witnesses are singing the song of salvation. They're ringing out the gospel message, testifying to the power of the gospel. But these two witnesses were not where we see In fact, it's quite the contrary here. They were killed for their song, if their message had been set to music, the people would not have appreciated the beauty of the melody. Thankfully, the music didn't die that day. The church and her song triumph. And so here we go again with this theme of the book. We talked about it last week, uh, two weeks ago, I guess. The theme of the book of Revelation is what? We win, right? God wins, so therefore we win. That's the whole theme. That's why it's a beautiful book. That's why it's the perfect ending to Scripture. And we see this theme play out over and over again. Though the church may be persecuted, though Christians may be put to death, though there may be some who are quieted for the moment, we win. Our song doesn't die. The two witnesses, I believe, represent the church. And I think the two witnesses here in Revelation 11 serve as a summary of the entire book of Revelation. Revelation is a letter written to the persecuted church. Christians who were being persecuted by the Roman Empire. It's also a book about overcoming. Revelation is about overcoming. Rome is not going to have the last word. Satan is not going to raise the trophy victorious. There's a happy ending for the faithful. However, for those living at this time and who were hearing this message for the first time, they had to wonder because it sure seemed like evil was winning, right? It sure seemed like Rome was winning. The church existed in an environment that was very hostile toward them. Yet their mission hadn't changed. The testimony of the church was and still is that the power of the gospel changes lives. 
That's our song. That's always been our song. And it will continue to be our song throughout the ages till Jesus returns. Much of the world turns a deaf ear to this song. And while the message is powerful, it only has the power to convict for those who are willing to listen to its melody. In fact, some go so far as to kill the messenger, don't they? We see that here. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in the tomb. And then notice this, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. The testimony of these two witnesses was not music to the ears of the people hearing it. Did you notice that last line in verse 10? Because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Tormented? What was tormenting about what they said? Why would that be considered tormenting? Because they told the truth? Why would telling the truth be considered tormenting? Have you looked around our world today? Have you seen how our world responds to truth? Just make a statement of truth and see how people respond to it. Get on social media. Actually, don't because that's ridiculous. But, you know, if you were to get on social media, make some sort of, you know, statement about human sexuality and what the Bible says about it, you're going to get some responses that are in opposition, aren't you? Talk about the murdering of the unborn that is sanctioned in our country and see what kind of visceral response you get from some people. Did you know that Jake and I are Jesus idiots? That's what we were called the other day for a podcast that we did. A podcast on human sexuality that I believe was very well uh, discussed. It was a, a very loving approach and tone and yet somebody responded by calling us Jesus idiots and calling our podcast hate speech and I responded by saying well isn't calling someone a Jesus idiot kind of hate speech too, you know? But the truth of the matter is, the gospel message, this, this song that we sing and that we ring out, is not going to be well received from many around us. Many are not going to want to hear it. Many don't want to hear the truth because they want to believe a lie instead. That's just the way it is. I mean, how about a man that leaves his, his wife for another woman, he leaves his kids behind, and, and his friends try to talk some sense into him, but he doesn't want to hear it. Why? Because he wants what he has. He wants to believe the lie, right? Why, why does a, a, a teenage couple, you know, uh, try to justify premarital sex? Because they want the lie, right? Why does an alcoholic tell himself over and over again, I don't have a problem? Because he wants to believe the lie. He wants to believe that what he's doing is okay, right? We see it play out over and over again. When you prefer the lie over the truth, you know what truth is? It's tormenting. And you do everything you can to turn a deaf ear to it. Even if that means killing the messenger like we see in Revelation chapter 11. What's sad and sickening all at the same time is that the bodies of the two witnesses are left in the street to rot. No one is allowed to give them a proper burial. Not only that, look at verse 10, the first part of it. And those who dwell on the earth 
will rejoice over them and celebrate, and they will send gifts to one another. What kind of gifts do you give for a death party? You ever been to a death shower? Anybody registered for a death shower? What do you get somebody? I'm afraid there's many people in our world who would love to kill truth and celebrate its death. Of course, we as Christians don't always respond real well to this, right? In fact, many times as a Christian, we can be very unloving in our response. As someone once said, there's no kind of hate like Christian love. We've got to be careful how we respond. We've got to be careful how we approach those who don't love the truth. Sometimes our anger speaks louder than the love of Christ. I mean, let me ask you, does it make you angry when you see truth crucified? Does it make you, does it make steam come out of your ears? When you hear people dismantling the Bible and yet then plucking a passage out of context to make it support their immorality? Does it drive you nuts and make your blood pressure boil? Make your blood boil, make your blood pressure go up when you, when you hear of people thumbing their nose at God? Have this abject opposition to more morality and, 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 the, and the truth that the Bible stands for? I know it makes you mad. I see your post on Facebook. I know it makes you mad. But what's the proper response? How should we respond as Christians to quote-unquote persecution? And you know what? The answer to that question may make you angrier than what people do. Because think about this. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil to evil for anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. To sum it all up. All of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. We have a tough time with passages like these, don't we? We may agree with them in theory, but applying them is a whole lot harder. As a result, we do our best to insert caveats and make justifications to find exceptions. But there is no nuance here, folks. It means what it says. The suffering Christian 
is to respond like Jesus, which Peter describes this way. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. But that's not how we're conditioned to think and operate, is it? In fact, that is anti-American. If anyone slaps you on the cheek, you beat them down before they can slap you on the other cheek, right? I mean, that's how you respond. You knock them out before they can do anything else. If someone wants to sue you, you countersue them, and, and you take them for all they've got be, because they even thought that they could sue you in the first place. If someone forces you to go one mile with them, force them to drink their own blood, right? No one messes with me. Don't start nothing, to your, there won't be nothing. Mess with the bull, you get the horns. Come and take it, right? That's how we respond. Not only that, you got to establish yourself as the alpha. You've got to assert your dominance. Assert your will. Make sure that nobody even wants to mess with you in the first place. This is how we often Think of ourselves. Put that up there, Levi. I think if given the choice, I'd probably venture to say that a lot of Christians would like to choose John, Waver, John Wayne over Jesus. I mean, that's the character that we admire. That's, the, that's how we've been trained to think and operate. We want the kind of superhero that nails his enemies to the cross, not the other way around. But it shouldn't surprise us that Jesus and Peter and Paul speak about doing good to those who persecute you. It's a prevailing message throughout the New Testament, isn't it? It's certainly a piece of our Lord's message here in Revelation. It's the message of the cross. It's what following Jesus looks like. If you want to follow Jesus, then this is part of it, right? And it's not weakness, it's meekness. And those two things are not synonymous by any means. Because Jesus was meek, but he certainly wasn't weak. Meekness is strength. It's, it's being strong. But it's having your will tamed to the will of God. Neither are we weak when we respond the way that Scripture tells us to, to persecution. Do you know why God never wants us to return evil for evil to anyone? Do you know why? Do you know why God wants us to bless those who persecute us? Do you have any idea why? Because vengeance isn't your job. That's not your role. And anytime we act out in vengeance, anytime we return evil for evil, you know what we do? We sin every time. We don't react correctly. Anger leads to us reacting in ways that are unchristlike. We lose our Christianity in that process. God says, that's not your job. Your job isn't revenge. Your job isn't vengeance. You can go back to Revelation chapter 5 and you see these souls crying out from under the altar. How long, Lord? How long? How long before you vindicate us? And really the book of Revelation is God saying, hang in there. Hang on. Because in the end, y'all are going to be the heroes. In the end, we all win anyway. It's already been determined. Evil is going to lose. 
They're going to get theirs in the end. My job is vengeance. Your job is what? Preach the gospel. Live out the gospel. Live out the mission. Be a disciple. That's your job. Vengeance is not yours. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, that's not your role. That's not your responsibility. Preach out the word. Live out the word. Be a blessing and let me take care of the rest. That's what God's message is. You know what Ernest Hemingway, Alfred Nobel, and Mark Twain all had in common? They all got to read their own obituary. Did you know that? Really an interesting thing. Mark Twain's boat was suspected to be out on rough seas and fog. And so it was suspected that he died while out on his boat, when he actually out, in actuality, he never went out on his boat in the first place. And so he had the eerie experience of reading his own obituary. Alfred Nobel was the inventor of dynamite. It's said that the reason he changed his tune and, and uh, started that Nobel Peace Prize is because he felt so bad after reading a, a, a mock obituary of himself that read, The Merchant of death is dead. And then you have Ernest Hemingway, who it was thought was killed in a plane crash in 1954. Numerous papers reported his death, but apparently Hemingway was still alive. And it is said that he kind of took all of those obituaries from all those different papers and put them in a scrapbook and he read them every morning at breakfast. How would you like to read your own obituary? In essence, that's really what's happening here in Revelation chapter 11, isn't it? The two witnesses who represent the church are dead. A celebration ensues, but as we're reading of their death, we learn that they're not really dead. God comes through. He makes good on his word. The word that we read about back in Matthew 16, 18. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The church and her message cannot be killed. Now, I realize that there are dead churches today. There are churches that have died. I realize that in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, talk about messages to churches, some of which were on the verge of death. But that relates back to the faithfulness of the people. The church will not die. Hades will not overcome it. Death will not overcome it. So it's a testament to the faithfulness of Christians whether our congregation lives or dies, whether other congregations live or die. But this idea that somehow, some way, we've got to overcome the persecution around us so that we may live, the church isn't going to die. You may die as a Christian. Collectively, as Christians, we may let the church die because our faith dies. But the church is going to live on. It's going to conquer When it comes to enduring and overcoming, we have the same charge today that we read about in Revelation chapter 2 and 10, and it's this, be faithful until death. That's it. Be faithful until death. The first church grew against seemingly insurmountable odds. And you're telling me that, that, we're facing, that what we're facing today is going to keep us down? I mean, what kind of threat do we face today? Well, we may lose our tax-exempt status. Come on, folks. 
I mean, while that would be somewhat of an inconvenience for sure, what did they endure versus what we endure? We we have so much more at, at our fingertips, so many more resources. How tragic it would be if we let the church die because of our lack of faithfulness. When we have so much more in the way of resources and and opportunities, if the message or the messenger is going to die, it will be because we didn't do anything. In a way, complacency and apathy is a bigger threat to us than anything else. Anything from the outside pales in comparison to that when you think about it. If the church is going to die, if a church is going to die, it's going to be because the members were not faithful. Because they didn't pull their weight. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. This idea that we need the government to help us or whatever is ridiculous. The church will always thrive. It thrived and in, in seemingly insurmountable odds it grew. It grew under a government that was hostile towards it. And she will continue to grow and be a movement as long as we buy in, right? Most of you know the name Teddy Roosevelt. It's our 26th president, is that right? I think. What you may not know is that when he was campaigning in 1912 for a third term, he walked out of his hotel room in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and just before he got into a car, a gentleman came up to him, pointed a gun at his heart, and pulled the trigger. And the bullet lodged between a rib, missing his heart. You see, he had his his speech, his 50-page speech, folded up and put in his heavy overcoat, along with his eyeglass case. So the bullet was slowed down because of that speech, because of his eyeglass case, because of that heavy overcoat, and and it lodged in his rib. And his handlers were trying to get him to go to the emergency room, but he spit on the ground, and not seeing any blood, he assumed that it didn't hit any major organs, and so he went up and he delivered his speech. A 90-minute speech, no less. I say that story because, I tell you that story because it's a good example of somebody who was wounded but not defeated. And that is the message of Revelation. Wounded, but not defeated. Listen to these words. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. And we could add to that, wounded, but not defeated. This may not describe us. Maybe we don't face this kind of persecution. But it should motivate us. If they can keep the work of the church alive under such adverse circumstances, then certainly we can as well. Wouldn't it be tragic if we let what they suffered for die with us? Now, some of you are sitting here this morning and you are wounded Some of you are dealing with with a mess in your lives. Some of you are dealing with with really big open wounds. Maybe you need your church family. Maybe you need this church family. 
That's one of the things that attributes to the health of a church, the fact that, that we rally around one another, that we pick one another up when we're wounded. Maybe you've been wounded by sin. Maybe you, maybe you need prayer. Maybe you need somebody to hug on you and love on you. As a family, the strength of this family is only seen within the power of God and our rallying around one another, loving one another, fellowship. Those are our calling cards. And when we leave here this morning and we go throughout our week next week, when we begin, you know, the work day tomorrow, are we going to show the world what a vibrant, loving church looks like? Are we going to show them that we are willing to carry on the message and the mission, no matter what may be affecting us personally or what may affect us as a body? Because I think we could all point to some forms of persecution that we face that are real. How are we going to respond? Will we bless or will we curse? Will we return good for evil or evil for evil? I think you know the answer. If we can help you this morning, if you're wounded, we want to help you. If you're someone who needs prayer, if you're someone who's ready to study the Bible, if you're someone who is ready to begin a daily walk with God, we want to help you. Why don't you come as we stand and as we sing?